Well, in Colossians chapter 4, we pick up a part two of precious people looking at verses 10 through 13. Boys, we keep hearing about the ministry. The key word that keeps coming out over and over again is faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithfulness in ministry. One who just keeps on keeping on. The person who's in the right place at the right time doing repeatedly, consistently what they're supposed to be doing. It's interesting, the Lord doesn't tell us to be super successful or famous or rich. He just asks that we just be faithful, right? We just pick up our oar on the boat out of a hundred different oars and we just do our one stroke, right? That's what's going to keep the things moving forward. And when we get to heaven, faithfulness is greatly rewarded. You know, last time we asked the question, what if your name was in the Bible? These guys, 10 guys we're going to see here in chapter 4. 100 people Paul mentions overall. 26 at the end of the book of Romans. So there's going to be some really cool people we're going to see in heaven going, hi, what's your name? Aristarchus. Oh, yeah, you were in Colossians. Um, Paul mentioned your name. That's right. I'm in the Bible, the eternal word of God. Boy, that'd be pretty, pretty great. But of course, the truth is, our names aren't in the Bible. Well, they might be, but it's a different Samuel, right? My name's Samuel. It's in the Bible. I'm in the, well, it's not you though, right? It's a different Samuel. So your, main, your name may be in the Bible, but you're not in the Bible, okay? But, um, our name is written in heaven, and all the good works we've done will remain there forever in our eternal rewards. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, for I know of nothing against myself, Paul talking about judging himself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring forth the light that is hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. And then listen to this last phrase then each one's praise, not condemnation, not disappointment, each one's praise will come from God. So yes, those things that we have sinned, fallen short of, God has wiped them away, scattered them as far as the east is to the west. There'll be no condemnation, no unreward, so to speak. But on that day, he's giving out rewards. There is going to be a joy and a praise of the things that we did correctly, faithfully. And Paul says that's, that's really it. It's about, was I faithful? That's the question. So last week, we looked at two guys, Tychicus, and he is called a faithful minister, a fellow servant of the Lord. And then Onesimus, who is a faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you, part of the church. So we looked at two men and, and, and Paul says up front, it's because they were faithful that they should be praised. They, no doubt, on that day, when God's going to judge all things and bring all things to light, they are going to be counted faithful. Obviously, the word says they already are. But in Matthew 25, 23, the Lord said to him, maybe you should put your name in there. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful 
over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. What does he call the servant? Successful? Famous? (laughs) Powerful? Miracle worker? No, he just calls him faithful. See, that's character, isn't it? I mean, kids grow up wanting to make a big splash in one moment, and then the splash is over. And we have to tell them, right? It's not about the big splash you make. It's about the consistent walk. You know, when I, we'd go to high school camps, and God would just pour out his spirit on these junior high kids or high school kids or college kids. We would at some point say towards the end of the week, you know, it's not how high you jump here at camp. It's how consistent you walk when you go back into the valley, right? And this is it, being consistent. And so again, enter into the joy of the kingdom is a great thing. Well, today we're going to look at four more names of some pretty um, radical people with four areas of faithfulness. The first one is faithfulness in trials. The second guy we're going to look at is faithful to restart or start again or start over. And then another guy is faithful to continue on in the ministry. And then another who's faithful who labors in prayer. And hopefully every one of us will be encouraged in the areas we need to be encouraged today. Let's look at verse 10 here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So we learn this. We know about Aristarchus. There's quite a few things about him as you read through the book of Acts. That he was from Thessalonica. And he was actually a Macedonian from Thessalonica. He is a Jewish convert. There weren't a lot of those. He was with Paul on his second and third missionary journey. And the believers in Thessalonica, probably him, it says of Gaius and a number of other guys that were with Gaius, were all overcome because the people were saying, here comes these guys who's turned the world upside down. That's a pretty cool thing to have your name in the Bible and you're one of those people that turned the world upside down. Boy, we need that right now, right? Everybody's saying, get a Republican as president and we'll turn the world upside down. Yeah, we always get disappointed, don't we? Um, let's look for Jesus to turn our world upside down and then in the name of Jesus go out and turn the world upside down. And uh, he was Paul's traveling companion uh, and actually at one point was dragged into the theater at at Ephesus um, to be put to death possibly. But he got out of there. That was in Acts 19. And then he traveled to Asia, and then he traveled all the way to Rome. So it doesn't mention his name other than he was with Paul in Asia, and he traveled all the way to Rome. That means he was with Paul when Paul was robbed, (laughs) when Paul was beaten by his countrymen and beaten by foreigners, when he was shipwrecked. He was there. Aristarchus was on the shipwreck that happened in Malta. Remember there, they crashed, and, and Paul was being a servant, making a fire, and a snake jumped out and bit him, and, and all the locals are going, oh, that's a sign that he's an evil guy. Well, he is a prisoner, so it makes sense. But then the poison of the snake had no effect on him. And then they're like, oh, he's a god. And, and Paul said, no, I'm not a god, but I'd like to talk about him. And that whole 
island, that tribe got saved. So Aristarchus was there in some mighty places. And Philemon, he's going to be called a fellow laborer. Here he's called a fellow prisoner. And he was right next to Paul in prison while Paul was writing the New Testament. Boy, not a lot of people can say that. I was sitting right next to Paul when he wrote the new, half of the books of the New Testament. That's a pretty awesome thing to have a name to claim uh, on that. This word prisoner is interesting because it literally is a word referring to somebody taken captive in the middle of battle, in warfare. So remember, Paul often would call those people with him my fellow soldiers. And sure enough, Aristarchus was a fellow soldier who was taken captive while they were doing battle. Of course, the battle they were doing was a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. A guy named Alfred Meyer, he suggested the idea that we see different people at different times in prison with Paul, that they actually took turns. Like Aristarchus did it for a couple of years, and then he was released, and then another of Paul's followers would be there with him in prison for a couple of years. We don't know that for a fact, but there's some implications that that might be true. I think these two Proverbs are true about Aristarchus. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. Amen. But here's the part of Proverbs 17, 17 I want you to see. A brother is born for adversity. There's two ways to look at that. One is that brothers fight. <laughs> and that's true. But that wouldn't be a blessing, would it? It's like, yeah, brothers fight. You know, a friend loves at all times, and brothers, they fight. No, it's saying brothers in the battle come together to fight together against the adversary. And Archippus was a fellow soldier side by side with Paul. Proverbs 18.24, A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And of course, that's really, I think, a prophecy about Jesus being that brother to us. But nevertheless, it's true about Archippus, or Aristarchus as well. Well, moving on to verse 10, the second part of that, with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction, that when he comes to you, welcome him. Now, you guys might remember this guy. He calls him Mark here, but often known as John Mark in the Bible. Um, John is the Latin, or excuse me, the Jewish name, and Mark is Latin. And we know like Paul's name was actually Saul, changed to Paul. He had a Gentile name. It wasn't uncommon to have a, a, a Gentile name as you went to school or worked in business in a town where the Jewish name didn't necessarily translate. But we, we learn here, this is the only place we learn it in the Bible, that he is actually a cousin to Barnabas. And... Uh, He's got incredible roots. It, going back to Acts 12, remember they were having this continual prayer meeting day and night because John the Apostle, or excuse me, James the Apostle had just been beheaded. 
and they had Peter in prison, they were going to do the same to him. And the church there in Jerusalem got together and was praying day and night at Mary's house, who is the mother of John Mark. So the first church, if you would, probably in ever existence was at John Mark's house as a young man. So he's got some serious pedigree, if you would, uh, going all the way back to the first Christian church. And, and by the way, um, Peter did get released. An angel did it. An angel came and kicked him in the side. He's like, hey, what's going on? You know? And he's like, get up. Let's get out of here. And, and he walked outside, and Peter is outside going, where do I go? And he thought, well, I'll go to church. And he goes to Mary's house and knocks on the door, and they open it, and then they slam the door in his face going, it's a spirit of Peter, I think. I think he's dead. And his spirit's, you know, they didn't know what to think. He's like, what? They opened the door and Peter's like, would you let me in? Um, and he told them the, the supernatural story and there's a great encouragement to the church. Well, you might remember this guy. We, we, it makes sense now that Paul and Barnabas chose John Mark to go with them on the very first missionary journey. Wow. What a moment in time in all of history, right? I mean, it would have been cool to be in Bethlehem the night Jesus was born, but it would have been amazingly cool to be packing up for the very first missionary journey ever happening in Christendom. And John Mark, this young man, got to go with him, but it didn't last long. It tells us in Acts 13, 13 that, that when they finally got to Pamphylia, that John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. Some people say he got homesick. Some say he missed his girlfriend. Some say that it was, he was too much of a softy and he couldn't endure you know, sleeping on hard ground. No, we don't know, but he didn't have faithfulness. He wasn't able to stick it out to the end. And so when they were getting ready to start their second missionary journey, Barnabas just thought, oh, of course we're taking John Mark, because now we realize it's his cousin. And, and he, he's thinking highly of him and that, hey, he had a little difficulty in the first missionary journey, but that's not him. That He'll do great. He understands what it takes this time. But Paul put down his foot and said, absolutely not. He doesn't get a second chance. And Barnabas and Paul end up having such a sharp discussion over this that Barnabas took John Mark and went to Cyprus and did his own little missionary journey. But then Paul took some other guys and did his missionary journey. Of course, we know which way the video camera went, right? I'm sure Barnabas had a great ministry, but the video camera went with Paul. So even if Barnabas was right, Paul was right, and it was the guy that, that the book of Acts follows. But after a period of time, it appears that they had indeed reconciled. But tradition has it. I mean, we don't have this documented in the Bible, but it seems to be that Peter, maybe with, by, John, by Barnabas' encouraging, we don't know, took him on as his disciple. And in 1 Peter 5.13, he actually says uh, that Mark greets you, and so, uh, or excuse me, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Remember Paul called Timothy, my son? Well, Peter calls John Mark his son. 
And so most believe that the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter that Mark wrote. So that's a shortened version of Peter's uh, input into a gospel. And so this young man who failed at the beginning ended up writing one of the four gospels. Wow. But however they reconciled, Paul and did. As a matter of fact, in Philemon, that little tiny letter in verse 24, he's giving greetings and he says, as do Mark greet you, my fellow laborer. And so we know that later he was in Ephesus helping out Timothy, pastor that very large church. But Paul, in his very last letter, in his very last chapter of that letter, said, even though I know you need Mark there in Ephesus to help you pastor the church, he says, bring him to Rome because he is useful in the ministry to me. He personally ministers to me. Well, tradition has it that later John Mark went to Alexandria, Egypt, started a church there, but later was martyred by Caesar Nero. So really, John Mark is that cautionary story that says that if you start off in a difficult way, don't give up because the end can be quite fabulous if you go for the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance, whatever you need. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, John Mark is an encouragement to everyone who failed in their first attempt to serve God. There's a quote that says, conversion takes but a moment, but growth takes a lifetime. And so John Mark is really that cautionary tale of a man who failed and started again and the end of that ministry was great. Isn't it awesome that God's knocking at the door of our hearts saying, let me come in? That it's us that don't have the faith to receive the grace. You know, I think of David when he sinned by having an affair with Bathsheba and then indirectly murdering her husband. David just thinking, there's no hope for me. I mean, people can sin and God will forgive them, but not that kind of sin. That's just as bad as a person can be, and it was true. But he, you read in those, the Psalms where his bones are, are turning to wax and, and his bed is turning to a river because he's crying so much. And, and he had just nine months of hell. And then finally, Nathan, his good friend, the prophet, says, hey, there's a story. And he tells him a story about a rich man taking this poor man's one little sheep. And David says, that man's to be put to death. The law says you just got to give him four sheep in his place. But David gave him the death sentence because his own heart was condemned, you see. And then Nathan said, you are the man. Uriah had one little sheep and you took it when you already had 12 wives. And you could have had many more if you wanted it. Why did you take his little lamb? And David said, I've sinned. In the same verse, God says, you're forgiven. And really, it's just faith to believe that where our sin abounds, his grace abounds more, that God's more loving than you imagine. He's not a little more loving than the most loving person you've ever met. <laughs> his love for you is higher than the heavens are above the earth. God's not a little more merciful than the most merciful person you can think of, imagine. God's mercies cannot be 
even in conception. But they're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness, not yours, but great is his. So there's some of you, maybe you need that fresh start right now. You need to be able to say, I need a point in time to start seeking God again, reading the Bible again, getting on my knees and praying again, to come back to Christ. I've not been walking with him. I know him. I received him years ago, but I need to get back up and start following him as a believer does. Let's just pray right now. If that's you listening online or maybe in this message five years from now, you'll hear it. Lord, please, I ask right now, those who are downtrodden, those who have feeble hands and knees that are shaky, that you would lift them up. Bind the evil one. Bind the demons that are trying to depress them and give them anxiety and, and take away the hope. We're with God and we have hope. We're not without God. And we thank you, God. You're not just the God of the second chance, but God of the millionth chance. That the righteous man falls seven times and he's still considered a righteous man and he gets up all seven times because you're faithful even when we're not faithful. You can't deny yourself that you'll never leave us or forsake us and that your plans for us are good and not evil to give us a hope and a future and that the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. So those who today, the John Marks, maybe it's ministry, maybe it's faithfulness, maybe it's to be the on-fire Christian they know they could be, they have been at one time, Lord, today give them your grace. And if that's your heart, just cry out in your heart, God, forgive me. Lord, I want to be a vessel sanctified, set apart for your use. I want to be a seeker of God. When you said, seek your face, my soul said, your face, O Lord, will I seek. One thing I desire to the Lord, to seek after you, to know you, to follow you, to be a light and a salt of this earth. Lord, just do a mighty work in the hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, we're going to go on to the next guy now by the name of Jesus, or Justice, actually. So you got to remember that Jesus was a very common name. And it's the same name as Yahshua, Yah, God, Shua, salvation. We say in the English, Joshua. In the Spanish, they say, what? Everybody knows that. Jesus, you know. But evidently Justin, or Justice here, didn't want to, you know, hear people praying in the name of justice, or excuse me, in the name of Jesus. And, and like, what? You know, it, it just didn't feel right to him. So he'd rather be called justice, which means righteousness, interesting enough, which he, it's true. Jesus made him righteous. We, we say the word Jesus, and it really, there's nowhere, there's no, there's no language where that's really true. <laughs> In the Greek, it's Jesus. Jesus. It's not Jesus. But what we've done, or the English, back in the whatever year it was, they said, let's transliterate. That's where you take the letter out of the Greek and you say, what's that look like in English? Okay, let's put that in English. And so they kept the spelling and and. and a transliteration, 
And then they just Englishized it. How would, how would you say it in England? Uh, we'd say uh, Jesus. Okay, well, that's what it is then. So it's really just sort of an um, English-sized um, way of saying it from the Greek. But it's not the Greek. <laughs> and so we've made it sort of unique, which is sort of cool. Because that, that's the way it should be in my mind, you know. So we don't have people naming their kids Jesus, um, you know, at least that way. Um, they, may, they, may, they may do it like Jesus in their language, but, but nobody's going to say Jesus in this way. So it's sort of unique, sort of interesting. But he was a Jew, and there wasn't a lot of them. you got to remember, most of the Jews hated the message. Paul first went to the, to the synagogues, but as you read through the book of Acts, most of the time they ran him out. <laughs> And Paul would have to shake off the dust of his feet and say, you've counted yourself unworthy to hear the gospel. I go to the Gentiles. And so it was mostly Gentiles that believed. It wasn't a huge number of the Jews that believed. And so having a Jew that believed is a pretty amazing thing. But then having a Jew that felt called to ministry and then called to leave his home and then called to follow Paul and to be a follower with Paul because Paul's ministry, remember, right from the beginning, God says, Paul, I'm calling you to the ministry, not just to salvation, and your ministry is going to be a ministry of suffering. I'm going to show how much a person can suffer for the cause of Christ. So if you were a follower of Paul, you were signing up to suffer ministry. So Paul was shipwrecked three times, the fourth time in the book of Acts. He was beaten with rods and beaten with whips. He was stoned literally to death and was raised from the dead. He was robbed. He was imprisoned. I mean, this guy, you, you didn't see it, uh, you know, as we, we just know from as we read like 1 Corinthians 11, the, 2 Corinthians 11, the big list. We're like, man, none of those things except for one shipwreck was even mentioned in the book of Acts. But there were three other times he shipwrecked. And the one that he's talking about can't be that one. So it's, it's interesting that, that this was a hard thing. So this guy, Justice, we really don't know anything about him in this right here. He's one of those unknown followers so when we get to heaven, we can, you know, go to the movie night and see justice ministry along with Paul. But we don't know. But yet he's one of these faithful guys that are mentioned by God. All scripture is, is ultimately inspired and written by the Holy Spirit, even though he used man. And God wanted to say, you, you can be just like justice. There's not a lot known maybe by the world, but you know and I know that you're a faithful ministry minister worthy to be named. And so, like I mentioned, a Jew who became a Christian was a, not a, a normal thing, and then to feel called to the ministry, and then to go with Paul, and then to stay with Paul, and then to not eventually betray Paul. <laughs> Paul's, a lot of people that were Paul's followers and and got saved through his ministry, we, we read in Philippians 1 and, and 2 Timothy that a lot of them denied him 
and, and saw him even as the enemy. It's crazy. Remember in 2 Timothy 1.8, he tells Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. His own son and the faith, Timothy, was backing away from Paul because Paul was such a hot topic because he was in prison. And the people that didn't like his message of grace but wanted to teach more legalism into Christianity, they were literally saying, we're right because Paul's in prison. If Paul was right, he wouldn't be in prison. But here we are, we're successful and wealthy and staying uh, at the Four Seasons Hotel when we travel around. And, and you know, we're, our message has got to be right because we're successful. We're not stuck in prison like Paul. But later, when Paul went to his death, virtually everybody, in 2 Timothy 4.16, in my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. Paul's saying, I think they're going to have to answer to the Lord about that. But in, first, in 2 Corinthians, here's an idea of how bad it was. In 2 Timothy 1, Verse 15 through 18 there, it says, This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Dude, Asia was where almost all the churches he started were at. There was one over in Europe and in, in, in uh, Macedonia area, Philippi, but there, there wasn't a whole lot outside of that. So virtually... All of Christendom at this time, which would be Turkey today, all had turned away from him. Two of his very closest friends, uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. You guys remember that, how the household of uh, Onophorus, they often refreshed him and they were not ashamed of his chains for a very long time. They even came, traveled to Rome and, and, and zealously worked to try to find him to give him blessings, but now even they have turned away from Paul. And Paul says, the Lord grant to them that they may find mercy from the Lord on that day. For you know very well how many ways he ministered to me in Ephesus. So Paul is saying, these, these guys that I never thought would betray me have betrayed me. And all I can say is, you know, it's not for me to judge them. God, you take care of it. You judge them. Wow, we, when we think of Paul's sufferings, we often don't think about that. So when you read a guy named Justice who's, in, who's staying with Paul even while he's in Rome, do you understand what I'm saying? There weren't a lot of those guys around. These are my only fellow workers of the circumcision. That's it. I've got three, four of these guys that are Jews that are with me. Everybody else is Gentiles but they have brought me great comfort. And of course, um, again, Paul's thinking, nobody is with me anymore. Even Timothy's wanting to deny he knows me, my own son in the faith. And, and then you have a guy like Justice show up going, no, no, Paul, no, no, no. no. I, you're God's man, and what you're writing is, is tr the truth, the gospel of grace. Well, the next guy, the final guy here, Epaphras, who was faithful to labor in prayer. And let's read this in verse 12 and 13. Epaphras, who was one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, 
that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. Remember, they were in the Lycus Valley. And the Lycus Valley had those three churches, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Those are the three in that valley. So they were all nearby each other. But Epaphras, who's one of you, most believe that he's actually started a church, that Epaphras got saved while Paul was in Ephesus for three years and left that school of ministry and went home and started the church there in Colossae. So he was the senior pastor who said, hey guys, I'm going to take a furlough or I'm going to take a sabbatical or whatever you want to call it, but I'm going to go uh, for a time, end up being years, and, and be with Paul while he's in prison. Everybody else has forsaken him. I want him to know he's got at least a couple of friends in the world. But notice these three words, why he was away from the church that he loved. Always laboring fervently for you in your prayers. Remember Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, you can pray without ceasing. I wonder if it's because he's watching guys like Epaphras. Paul's like, man, I don't pray enough. When Epaphras is around, he puts me to shame. I thought I was a man of prayer until I met Epaphras, and this guy prays without ceasing. Ooh, that's good. Put that in there. Put that in there to the Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing like my brother Epaphras here. But it's interesting. We learn from Epaphras that the way he viewed prayer was hard work. Okay? I mean, I, I worked in construction, and we had a couple of jobs where we had to rip out cement, and underneath it was just slush that smelled like sewer, and it went down about four feet, and we spend a week in that stuff, and you're muddy, and, it's, and your sinuses, you smell it for a year. That was hard work. We had to show up going, <laughs> I remember, you know, going to bed at night going, <laughs> Lord, please let me be sick tomorrow. Getting down there and slushing through that stuff another day, another day, another day. Hard work. But Epaphras, he doesn't look like a lot of people say, well, we sat and pray with my coffee and, you know, glance at the newspaper a little bit. But I do that until there's any amount of pain. The moment I get bored or the moment it doesn't get me excited about praying or the moment I don't feel the inspiration, I just quit. Because you know that prayers of God, if there's no strain, if there's no pain, if there's no sacrifice. But the moment you sacrifice, you stop praying. That's often our mentality in America. I think our Americanized Christianity is not biblical often. But Epaphras here is teaching us that the way he viewed prayer was like a person in construction going to work. He's going to lift a lot of heavy stuff, and he's going to do a lot of difficult things. And when he's done, he's going to feel sore and sweaty, and he's going to feel like he worked a solid day of work. So he's always laboring fervently, passionately, 
in prayer. Interesting, this word, laboring fervently, is the word, Greek word agonizomai, which we get our word agonize from. But uniquely so here, it's, in this, it's like he's giving birth. <laughs> Interesting. It's like the pain of childbirth. So when he goes to prayer, he's agonizing like, oh, like what is going on? Somebody giving a baby? No, that's just a Paphras brain. Are you sure there's nobody in the other room delivering a child? No, I'm telling you, that's Epaphras. We have to hear that every day. He gives birth every day, <laughs> praying for the Class A church. You know, what's interesting is we just read uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire on Monday nights with the Leadership Discipleship Group. And, and we were reading there about the ministry of Finney. Finney was amazing. He he literally would go and the entire giant cities would come to Christ, thousands. But the point he makes here is he talks about a guy that 99% of the people never knew about, seen or heard. And his name was Daniel Nash. And Daniel Nash, if, if, if Finney was going to go, let's say, to Chicago, Daniel Nash would go there into some area of town where he could rent a room. And he would go into that room and shut the door for weeks. We read in one example where a lady finally opened the door and went in there because he had been in there for days. There was another man from the city that joined him. And she, she wonders if they were like really sick or dead because they hadn't come out of the room. They hadn't ate for days. And every time she put her ear to the door, she, it sounded like somebody was in severe pain. So when she opened the door, both of these men were laying on the ground with their face on the ground, just travelling and groaning. And they had been doing this for days, and she asked the question, are you guys okay? Like, oh yeah, we're just praying. I don't know, that it, it, it really strikes me because Finney's ministry was so powerful, but yet he doesn't attribute it to himself or his speaking. He attributes it to the travelling, agonizing prayer of Daniel Nash. Do you ever feel like not praying? Anybody want to raise their hand? Everybody, right? I mean, don't even bother. If you don't feel like praying, don't raise your hand. Yeah, it's just everybody. Okay. And then often when we do pray, we feel very much distracted. We, we get our brains, we finally sit down and are quiet for a minute, and all of a sudden we realize, oh, I got to do that, and I got to get that done, and I got to get that done, and I got to get that done. And now it's like, okay, unless I write that down, I'm not going to be able to do anything. But then the time you get in that mode, it's hard to get back to praying Epaphras wasn't that way. He labored in prayer. Prayer was a thing. It wasn't a passive thing. It was something that he gave himself to. And he was going to pray till he gave birth. He was going to pray till he broke through. He was going to pray until revival came. He always labored fervently. Also, this word agonizomai, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25, when he talks about athletic competing. He says, nobody competes agonizomai, mastery 
in wrestling and a physical athletic activity. He says, nobody wins unless they agonize, oh my. And he says, nor will I win. But we, they do it, the people in athletics do it for an earthly crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. So that's interesting. That, that here, agonizomai is like a wrestling. Remember Jacob? <laughs> he was a Jacob. He wasn't an Israel. <laughs> he wasn't a man governed by God. And, and God had to grab him and agonizomai with him until he was broken. Boy, another time this word is used, Romans 15, 30, a verse we should all memorize. First of all, he says in Romans 15, 30, I beg you, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you agonizomai. Actually here, it's the word S-Y-N in front of agonizomai because he's not saying you agonizomai, he's saying that you would get together with other people in agonizomai. Together with others, agonizomai. And of course, he's talking to the church in Rome. With me and prayers to God for me. Would you get together with others and, and labor, always striving, agonizomai? Would you get together as a group and I beg you, by the love of the Spirit, I beg you, agonizomai in prayers. And I love what he prayed for. How perfect that you would stand perfect, complete in all the will of God. This word, it's the word that also is translated mature, fully developed. Every pastor who's a true pastor, that's what he's always praying for is that the growth and the development would happen in every believer till they come to maturity and they're able to use all of their gifts that God has supernaturally given them at salvation. And then he says, I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. I love that. Every good pastor truly loves his people and aches for his people and desires to be with his people. And then also to the other two churches in the Lycus Valley. Well, as we come to the end here, let's think about Epaphras for a moment. Some great verses I want to share with you. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, another great memory verse. For without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What is it saying here? It's saying this, do you believe God exists? And of course, the answer is, of course, God exists. There's no, no debate in that. Through all the history of man, there's never been more atheists than there are right now. And even now, it doesn't break 10%. I mean, they tell you, oh, 20% of young people are atheists, whatever. I don't believe it. Typically, if you look at it, I, I, can, I can remember being back in college looking at it, and it was less than 2%. And then I looked at it just a couple of years ago, and it was still under 3%. In all of human history, 99 point or 98 point whatever people believe in God. Now, I'm not saying they believe in Jesus, 
But I'm saying you don't go in New Guinea and find a bunch of atheists, okay? You only find that when you go to a bunch of, uh, you know, prideful intellectuals who, who discover they're, you know, it's the most stupidest thing in the world. Of course there's a God. It's innate truth. It's like, prove to me water's not wet. I, us intellectuals don't believe water's wet. It's like, dude, it's a, it's a a prior truth. It has to exist. But anyway, if you believe God exists, then believe this other thing equally as him existing. What is the equal thing to God existence? That he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Period. I think of a non-believer in Acts 10 by the name of Cornelius. He was not a Christian. But remember, Peter was sent down to him, this Gentile Roman soldier. And it tells us, Peter, go to this guy. There's already a memorial in heaven built to this guy Cornelius. Not even born again yet. There's already a statue in heaven to two things, his tithing, his giving. He gave to the Jews. He wasn't a Jew, but he knew that God was the God of the Jews. And the other thing was his constant praying. You're going to go to heaven and see the statue of Cornelius, a man who God rewarded. First Gentile, far as we know, that ever got saved in Christendom was this guy Cornelius in Acts 10. That's a pretty cool claim to fame, huh? But yet, he was a man rewarded. So, do you believe God exists? If you do, equally in God existing, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Of course, we know Galatians 6, 9 by heart, right? Let's not grow weary in well-doing. In due season, you've got to go through the planting season and then through the watering season, and then through the hoeing, getting all the weeds out of their season. you got to let the plant grow for a good part of the way. But in its season, we will reap if we do not lose heart. We don't get tired of the hard work. We don't get tired of the agonizomai. If we say, well, I, you know, being an on-fire Christian is painful. <laughs> being an on-fire Christian causes me to carry this burden. Somebody asked me, I think it was last week, how are you doing? I'm like, I have a joyful burden and I love it. <laughs> I love it when I wake up in the morning and I'm, I'm burdened. And I, I just got to pray and pray. And, and through the day, I'm carrying this burden. I just love it. it. It's painful. I hate it, but I love it because I'm, I can't pray. I cannot not call out to God. It's a, it's a beautiful place. So, yeah, there's people that do lose heart because it's like, hey, I, I planted that plant three weeks ago, and three weeks is a long time. Why hasn't the plant grown yet? I, I'm, I'm ready to eat a watermelon, and I planted the thing three weeks ago, and there's no watermelon. I don't know if this stuff really works. Let's just rip it out and plant something else. Well, and it's going to take a little longer than that, right? You've got to keep in there. Until, don't lose heart. And Jesus taught us in Matthew 21, 13, the number one thing that burdened him about God's house is that it would be called a house of prayer. He could have said a house of worship, house of teaching, a house of evangelism. He could have said a lot of things, 
But he didn't even say, he didn't say a house of teaching, evangelism, worship, and prayer. Or, hey, this is a house of prayer and evangelism and teaching. He just said, if this one spiritual duty out of several spiritual duties is not happening, then you're not touching my heart of why I have this building, which was built by a wicked Herod, So it really wasn't about the building. It was about anybody coming in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course now us with the Messiah, that you would understand that the number one thing I want is for prayer. Just to let you guys know, Wednesday nights, we're just immediately starting with teaching. We're in Exodus, and then we try to have a time of prayer and worship. And it was a good last Wednesday night, but not every Wednesday is but it was good last week. We're learning. We're growing. And then Paul taught in 1 Timothy 2 to young Timothy, hey, how do I pastor, Timothy says. He says, the very first thing, make sure your church is a church of prayer. And he gives three words of supplication. This is earnest, groaning, praying, prayers, plural, many types of prayers, walking, talking, standing, and when you eat, when you wake up, when you go to bed, and then intercessions. This is where you're in the spirit, and all of a sudden, somebody comes to mind, and it's a burden, and you just start praying for that missionary on the other side of the world, or your child at school, or wherever it might be. And then in spiritual warfare, Paul says, here's the last but definitely not the least thing. When you're dealing with spiritual warfare, once you get the helmet on and the breastplate and all of that, he says in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication. Agonizomai, it's not the word there, but it's the same concept. In the spirit, being watchful to this end with all what? perseverance and supplication. He says that word supplication twice for all the saints. Jacob, I already mentioned, who wrestled with God all night. And it's interesting because God gave him the impression that he was winning at certain points. And he was encouraged to keep saying, I can beat this guy. But then when the light started coming up of the day, the Lord just touched his hip, blew it out of bing. It's like, oh man. This guy was toying with me. He could have killed me at any point. And he goes, hey, in these days, the winner had to give a gift to the loser. So he said, I want the gift. I I admit that I lost. And he said, what's your name? Jacob, he'll catch her. And he goes, now your name's Israel, one who has fought with man and God and has won. You're now governed, submitted, ruled by God. And then, of course, Elijah It says in James 5, 16 through 18, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, say it with me here, avails much. You see, we often get discouraged. We often forget that prayer avails much. And we think, oh, we pray and pray and pray, and really, you just get a little bit. That's it, you know? Maybe have you ever had an orange that you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and you get like a drop in the glass? Then you've had other oranges, you barely can't even squeeze it because it's already coming out. He's, he's saying, understand, you pray, you didn't feel anything. You pray, you didn't hear anything. You pray, you didn't see anything. But understand 
that it still availed much. We get to heaven, we're going to see the answers to our prayer. Now, no. We'd be so distracted. We'd want to go tell everybody about it. We would sit and look at it. Oh, look at that. We, we, we wouldn't live our lives. So most of our prayers, God doesn't even show us that it's answered. And a lot of times when we have really powerful, crazy answer to the prayer, we sort of forget about it very quickly. Because it's important that we move on and live our lives and not sit around and be in awe of these answered prayers. But let's not forget it avails much. Elijah, boy, he's a great man of God. But he was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't a prayer warrior. He wasn't smart. He didn't know a lot of the Bible. He wasn't super spiritual or holy or righteous. He was just a regular guy. But he understood and didn't forget and put at the forefront, if you believe God is, he's a reward of those who seek him. And he realized prayer avails much. A guy just like you. But he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And again, he prayed and the heaven gave rain and the earth produces fruit. You can go read that story about Elijah, but it was to bring the people to repentance. And of course, Moses, the first time in the Bible where God says, write this down as scripture, was this story in Exodus 17, where the Malachites were picking off the weary, the half-hearted and the elderly and the weak. So he said, we got to stop and fight these people. And these slaves are going, we don't know anything about fighting. We've been slaves. And Joshua goes down there with the group of men. And Moses realized, when my hands are up, they win. When my hands come down, they lose. So he had to force himself until the sun went down from the first breaking of the, the sun in the morning until the sun went down at night. I hope it was winter, not summer. <laughs> but he didn't put him down until victory had been won. And soon as the battle's over, God said, go get Joshua. Now write this down. It was, the story was not about what you did in the valley. It's about what Moses did in prayer on the mountain. That's why you had victory. Without a persistent, painful prayer, an agonizo prayer, agonizo my prayer, if, if Moses was an agonizo mine on the mountain, you wouldn't have had victory. Plain and simple. And of course, Jesus in Luke twenty two forty four, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus truly agonizo prayer, agonizo mine prayer. Hebrews 5, 7 through 8, it tells us about Jesus' prayer life who in the days of his flesh, when he was offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was the son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And what was that? Offering up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears his prayer life. God's saying to us today, I think what he spoke to Jeremiah 33.3, call to me and I will answer you and show great and mighty things which you know not of. Do you believe that? I definitely do. Let's pray this Wednesday. So we look at four guys today.
Aristarchus, who was faithful in trials. John Mark, who was faithful to restart or start again or start over. Justice, who was faithful to continue on in the ministry. Just one of the unknown guys, but yet he was faithful. And then Epaphras, a man who was faithful to labor in prayer. Who are these precious people? They're people just like the church today. Amen? Lord, we thank you that you were the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that what you did for Elijah, you would do for us today. What you did in Epaphras' life, that you would do for us today. And that through our prayers and supplication with vehement cries and labor, that people would be completed, perfect, matured in the faith. Lord, put upon our hearts, and especially the leaders of the church here's hearts, to be great men of prayer. We may not be great in any other area, but let us be great men of prayer. We may not cry about anything else, but we'd cry out to you about a wicked and perverse generation we live in, and that your people would, would be able to walk true and faithfully and righteously even in the midst of this perverse and sinful generation. Lord, like Elijah, we could pray that our California government, like King, the wicked King Ahaz and Jezebel, would be brought to repentance, or at least be shown the power of God. Lord, you can do anything if we ask and pray. All things are possible to him who believes. We can even speak to mountains, be uprooted and cast into the sea. Cause us to be faithful men and women of God, no matter what it is, just maybe faithful in coming to church, faithful in the Bible and prayer, faithful to pass out tracts or faithful to tell people that you love them. Whatever our part is, Lord, let us be faithful and be counted faithful and have the joy of the smile on your face to the praise of your glory on that day when you judge us faithful, good, well done, good and faithful servants enter the joy of my kingdom. And we thank you again for looking at these precious people again today. Like so many here, so precious. Everybody here is so precious, but so many are so, are worthy to be named in your books as being faithful here for decades. Reward them and let none, none of us grow weary in well-doing, knowing we will reap if we faint not. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.